We've been walking with Paul on his missionary journeys, and he's now on his third missions trip, his third missionary journey, and he's made it back to the city of Ephesus. His first time to visit Ephesus was on the second missionary journey, and he was just there for a few weeks. And the people asked him to come back, and he told them he would. And so Paul, when he left Ephesus the first time, he left behind a couple named Priscilla and Aquila who ministered there in Ephesus. And it wasn't long before Priscilla and Aquila met this man by the name of Apollos, who was a great orator, a great preacher, a great speaker, but who did not understand the truth of the gospel. And Priscilla and Aquila took him in. They taught him the truth. They, we might use this term in our church, they discipled him so that he could know the truth. And he went on to go back to Corinth and to minister for the gospel there. Paul then, sometime later, made his way back to, his, back to Ephesus, and he spent two, almost three years in Ephesus serving the Lord there, and God did a great work. When Paul got back to Ephesus, he met this group of 12 men, these 12 followers or disciples, but these, like Apollos, did not know Jesus Christ. They were trying to follow God through their own religion, through their own uh, customs, their own background, their own way. And when Paul took, to, took them in and explained to them the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel, these men trusted in Christ, they received the Holy Ghost, and they began to grow in their faith. You know, there are many people, even to this day, who claim to know God, who try to follow God, who try to do it in their own way. Nice people trying to do nice things, and yet they are lost without Jesus Christ. Jesus truly is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Him. That's why we stress the message of the gospel so much here at our church, because there's no other way given among men whereby ye must be saved than through the name of Jesus Christ. So Paul, when he gets to Ephesus, he finds these 12 men. He teaches them about Jesus. They trust in Christ. They begin to grow in their faith and walk with the Lord. And through the ministry of Paul and then these 12 men and others who receive Christ, the Bible tells us that everybody in Ephesus heard the gospel. Everybody in the surrounding areas heard the truth. And God was doing a mighty work. I want you to pick up the story with me this morning in, in Acts chapter 19. We're going to look at verses 11 and 12 as we kind of jump right back in here to the middle of Paul's time in Ephesus. The Bible says, And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs, or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Now this is a very unique occurrence, some pretty incredible miracles that were taking place in Ephesus. And as we look a little bit further this morning, you will see how a great revival takes place in Ephesus. How 
many people get right with God, how they confess their sin and they begin to follow God and God does a great work in Ephesus. But it's interesting how Luke records for us here these incredible miracles that were taking place. They were literally taking a piece of cloth, like a handkerchief that had touched Paul, or maybe he'd used to wipe his sweat as he was preaching, I don't know. And they were laying it on the body of a sick person, and the sick person was getting well. Pretty incredible miracle. In fact, something that some people to this day still try to replicate at times. And yet, just because this is recorded for us in Scripture, this is not condoning, say that, okay, after church, everybody bring up your hanky and wipe the pastor's brow and go lay it on a sick person. They'd be healed. They probably won't get better. They might get sicker. I don't know if they rubbed on me. There's a very important point that I don't want you to miss in this miracle as it's recorded. Notice who has the power to actually make the miracle happen. Who is the one doing the work of the miracle? It tells us right here in verse number 11. It says, And God wrought special miracles by the hand of Paul. When we see wonderful things taking place, it's very easy even miraculous things, for people to begin to take credit for it themselves. But the author here, Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is very careful to record for us who was the one actually doing the miracle. Was it Paul or was it God? And I would remind you this morning, who is the one that can and the only one who does any miracles? It's not me. It's not you. It's God. God is the miracle worker. We are just His servants. Paul here is not performing miracles. God is doing the miracle, and He's doing it through the Apostle Paul. This morning, I want us to look at this revival at Ephesus, the revival that took place at Ephesus. And I want you to consider with me how we can see this same kind of work of God take place in our own lives and in the life of the people here in our community. The psalmist asked the question in Psalm 85 verse 6, Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? In Isaiah, he wrote in chapter 57 and verse 15, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, I, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. What is revival? One author wrote, he said, it's the awakening or quickening of God's people to their true nature and purpose. The great preacher C.H. Spurgeon said a true revival is something that is to be looked for in the church of God. My friend, Pastor Chapel, who was here this spring with us, said it this way, to experience revival, we must once again give Christ the preeminence in our life. Revival. 
Here in verses 11 and 12, I want you to notice, first of all, that revival comes when the power of God is manifested through the people of God. The power of God is manifested through the people of God. The power of God was on display through the Apostle Paul, the person of God. But it's so important to us as we begin this message this morning to understand that the source of this power must be clearly defined. And that's exactly what Luke does for us here in verse number 11. I've already said it once and I'll say again, who is the source of the power? The source of the power is God. If you expect to see anything great done in your life or through your life, if you expect to make an impact, a difference, as people will say, to change the world, you need to understand that the power to bring change, the power to bring transformation, the power to bring revival only comes from God. Not from you, not from me, not from a great program, a great event. The power to bring transformation always comes from God. But how many times do we, would we rather rely on Hey, the sweaty handkerchiefs laid on the sick people is what healed somebody. Wow, look at that. It only works if God works. This miracle is not recorded as something that we are to repeat. It's just a record of an event that took place of God's almighty power. It's interesting as you talk with other people. I heard a testimony yesterday from a friend of Joe's about all the things that God has done in his life over the last few years. And when you hear somebody share a testimony like that, or if I were to tell you the stories of how our church started, uh, this week I posted some pictures on Facebook of our first Christmas party, and then you saw some pictures here of our Christmas party this year, and just seeing all the new faces and how God has grown the church, and many new people have come to Christ and been baptized and are following the Lord. We love those stories. But if I were to tell you all those stories or you were to hear Joe's friends, Jesus' stories, you would have said, wow, those are some pretty incredible things. The reality is you can't copy someone else's life. If you were going to try to go out and start a church as well, you can't copy the work of God in another place because it's God's work. You think that's interesting because so many times people will hear stories of God. Well, I want that to happen in my life. Well, God can do His own work in your life, but God's work in your life may look different. The special things that God provides for you may be different. The special experiences that you see of God's transformation in your life may look a little bit different than God's work in another place, another time, another situation. Sometimes we try to copy things like we see these miracles taking place in Scripture and say, well, if I don't see this same kind of miracle, then that means God's not working. No, that's just a story of God at work in this time, and God is at work in your life just the same, but the way it looks may be a little bit different than how it looked in this particular instance. The key here is the source of the power the source of the power. And if you miss the source and you get focused on the substance of the miracle, you'll miss the point of the miracle altogether. You see, the point of the miracle is not about the substance of what took place. It's about who did the work. 
Because you can't copy the substance of a miracle, but you can trust in the source of the one who gives the power to transform lives. Just like I can't copy Jesus' life, but I can trust in the same one that he's trusting in. If God ever were to lead me to start another church somewhere else, I can't copy what the Lord's done here, but I can still follow the same God who's done the work that he's done here. God does his work in his way. The source of the power must clearly be defined. There are many people in this world today who are trying to perform miracles by copying things that they saw God do in a different place. One way to see through those miracles is to question as to whether that work is being done for the glory of God or for the glory of the individual. People are trying to earn money for themselves or get fame for themselves or get people to look at them, then you know clearly this isn't a work of God. This is a work of man. Paul here is not being lifted up. It's God who's being lifted up. Revival comes when the power of God is manifested through the people of God. As we define the power, the source of power is coming from God. We can also see here that the presence of this power is a confirmation of God's blessing. When you see God at work in somebody else's life, it's an encouragement. It's a confirmation. Hey, God is doing a great work. It may look different than how God's power is at work in your life, but you can have great encouragement that God is at work, the confirmation of God's blessing. These extraordinary signs were not of Paul's power. They were evidences of God's presence. God's presence. I think it's interesting when you read through the book of Ephesians, which is the letter Paul wrote later to this church that's in Ephesus that he's ministering to at this point. Over and over and over again, he emphasizes the power of God. Now, Ephesians is six chapters. There's not time for me to read all six chapters to you this morning, but let me just give you a few excerpts from the book of Ephesians. Paul writes to the church there in chapter 1 and verse 15 of Ephesians. He says, Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Do you hear the focus of Paul right here in this first chapter? He's not saying, hey, let me give you some truth. Let me give you some wisdom. He says, no, it's my prayer that God would give you wisdom, that God would give you understanding. Notice the source of the power is God. He says that the eyes of your understanding be enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of His calling and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. Listen to verse number 19. He says, And what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe according to the working of His mighty power? Paul repeats power twice in that verse, talking about God's almighty power. And he says this power is the same power which He wrought he worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and all power and might and dominion and every name that is named. Not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. 
That's a lot of power. And he says, and he's put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Paul talks about the power again at the end of chapter 3 as he closes out this great chapter with his statement, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. God has great power. I love the end of chapter 6 though. As Paul reminds the church at Ephesus where the power comes from to be able to stand against the wickedness of the devil and the wickedness of this world. He says in verse 10 of chapter 6, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Why do you need the power of God in your life? Why can you not do it in your own strength? Well, Paul continues on to say, he says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. You are not strong enough to do this on your own. You're not fighting against flesh and blood. This world would like you to think that you're fighting against flesh and blood. That it's a battle against the liberals versus the conservatives or the Democrats versus the Republicans or that it's the rich against the poor. No, it's a fight against spiritual wickedness in high places. And the only way you win that battle is by putting on the whole armor of God. He says, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Say, why was the power of God so evident here in Ephesus? Why was the power of God being manifested through the people of God here in Ephesus? Well, I think all you have to do is look back at verses 9 and 10 of Acts chapter 19 to see. It says, but when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he, that's Paul, departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Why was the power evident in Ephesus? It's because the power of God was being demonstrated consistently through the proclamation of the gospel. How can you have the power of God in your life? Well, Jesus Christ wrote it in the Great Commission. He says, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe whatsoever things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. How do we experience the power of God in our life? We have to be faithful to proclaim the message of the gospel. Because without the gospel, without God at work in us, we have no power to stand up in this world that we're in today. So many Christians trying to live in their own strength, trying to fight the good fight, but are never willing to receive the power of God through the Holy Spirit to proclaim the message of the gospel. Sure, it's scary. 
Sure, it's hard. Sure, it's hard to stand for truth because you can't do it on your own. You need the power of God. But when you will step out by faith and say, Lord, I'm going to obey and do what you've told me to do, it is incredible when God does His work through you to be able to speak truth to the lost. It is one of those things, I will tell you, that unless you do it, you can't understand it. I know, I'm not supposed to preach confusing things that cannot be understood, but this is one of those things. You have to experience it yeah. to understand it. If you will share Christ, you will experience the power of God to help you to share Christ. If you won't share Christ, you won't experience the power of God in your life in that way. It's as simple as that. And yet, we sit there afraid... And we say, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to say it. I don't have the answers. Or I'm afraid what somebody might say, what somebody might do. That's our flesh speaking. That's our own weakness speaking. And that's reality because that's who we are. We're just flesh. It's like grass. James says, the grass withereth and the flower fadeth away. Right? These things will not last. The power of God was demonstrated in Ephesus. Why? Because of the consistent proclamation of of the gospel, but not just as they proclaimed the gospel, but also as they continued on to teach those who had believed to walk by faith. We might call that discipleship. Again, it says that Paul takes these 12 and these others who followed and he began to teach them daily through their ministry, the gospel spread. It didn't just stay with the 12. It says that everybody, all the Jews and all the Greeks, Look at again, verse number 10. They heard the word of the Lord, all that dwelt in Asia. How did that happen? Well, yes, Paul proclaimed the gospel, but then he also taught those who received Christ to go out and share the gospel as well. You can't do this by yourself. You can't talk to enough people to tell everybody. But if you would faithfully reach a few, who then go reach a few, who reach a few more, and, and so on and so forth. I've seen the math done multiple times. If each Christian would lead somebody to Christ and teach them to lead somebody else to Christ, if all you did in the next year, in 2022, for the Lord was lead one person to Christ, and then taught them to lead somebody else to Christ, and so the year after that, they went out and led somebody to Christ, and you led somebody else to Christ, it's incredible. It's just simple math. Less than 20 years, the entire world would know Jesus Christ. But I've seen the statistics, just like you have, that some 90 to 95% of Christians will never lead another person to Christ in their entire lifetime. And we wonder why we have no power. It's not because it's not available. It's not because it's not real. Revival took place in Ephesus because the power of God was manifest through the people of God. Number two. The next thing we learn about revival is that it comes when the name of Jesus is magnified to those who are lost. The name of Jesus is magnified to those who are lost. We have to understand the source of this power comes from God, but it also comes as the name of Jesus is being lifted up to those who are lost. Look at verse 13. 
Because now the story gets interesting. We saw the miracle taking place in verse 11 and 12. Well, now verse 13, some other people are trying to get in on the miracle action. You know, that always happens. As God's work gets done, there are always people that show up and try to reap some of the blessings for themselves. As my pastor used to say, the gospel light attracts some strange bugs. Well, there's some strange bugs here we're going to read about in the next few verses. Look at verse 13. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus. All right, so listen to the rest of that verse saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preached. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew and chief of the priests, which did so. Now, if you stopped right there, hey, what's wrong with that? Someone has a demon and they're saying, in Jesus' name, the same one who Paul preaches, come out. Why is that a problem? I mean, aren't we supposed to say things in Jesus' name? If we say things in Jesus' name, isn't God supposed to do His work? Well, I think we learn a lot from the response of the evil spirit in verse number 15. Because as they speak to this evil spirit and say, come out in the name of Jesus, verse 15, and the evil spirit answered. By the way, evil spirits are real. They're real. This isn't just something from the movies. No, evil spirits are very real. This evil spirit spoke back and he said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? Who are you? I know Jesus. I know Paul. Who are you guys? It's interesting. Some of you might go a little bit deeper in your Bible study and you'd look up these words, I know Jesus and I know Paul. It's the same word in English repeated twice. But if you look it up in the Greek, it's actually two different words. Because just like in Spanish, there's two different words to know about something. In English, we have to know and then to know. Well, all we can do is kind of say it a little bit louder. But in Spanish or in Greek and other languages, there are two different words. One means to know through personal experience, through interaction, to have intimate knowledge of. The other means to know like you've heard about something, you know of something. And there's two different words here used in this verse. The one to know Jesus is that I've had personal experience with this one. Well, you say, how did this demon have personal experience with Jesus? Well, if you read your Bible, you'll learn that even these demons were created by God, by, by Jesus. But there came a time when Satan decided that he was going to try to be like God, that he was going to stand up and lift himself up to be equal with God. And then there were a third of the angels in heaven that decided to follow Satan. God, because He's holy and He can't be around sin or pride, he, he threw all of them out of heaven, cast them out. This evil spirit had had personal experience with the God of heaven. He was created by the God of heaven. He had stood up against the God of heaven and He had been kicked out of heaven by God. 
So when he heard the name of Jesus, he absolutely knew who these men were speaking of. Paul, on the other hand, he didn't have the same personal experience with, but he had definitely heard about Paul because Paul was ministering in the name of Jesus. He was doing it for the glory of God. Paul wasn't doing it for himself. He was doing it because of what Christ had done in him so that even had heard of him. But when it comes to the seven sons of Sceva, Stephen goes, who are you? This isn't the main point of the message, but I think it's an important thought. As I was meditating on this, I thought, you know what? The devil doesn't really care who you are. When I read scripture, it seems like the people who he knows are those who are standing for the Lord. The devil knew Job's name, knew Paul's name. The devil doesn't care about you. All he cares is that you don't follow Jesus. He doesn't need to know your name. But Jesus, on the other hand, He knows your name. As we read this morning in Psalm 139, His thoughts towards you are more than the sands of the sea. Devil, He doesn't even know who you are. Unless you're standing for the Lord and He knows you because He knows who the Lord is. Jesus, I know... Paul, I know, but who are you? Who are you? Who are you? You see, the name of Jesus is often used for selfish purposes. Selfish purposes. These Jewish exorcists, these traveling showmen, today these people are all around us. False teachers and false miracle workers who try and bring people in for their own purposes, for their own gain. Many false religions use the name of Jesus for their own purpose. Those that follow the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they even have Jesus Christ in their name. but They're not followers of Jesus. They use the same terminology that you use. But they don't say that the way to God is through Jesus. They say the way to God is through good works. The Eastern mystics, they say they believe in Jesus. But what they believe is very different from what the Bible teaches. Therefore, they're not believing in Jesus. You can say the name of Jesus all you want, but Jesus has been declared to us through the Word of God. He declared us to himself, or he declared himself to us through his words and through his works. There's only one God and one mediator between God and man. It's the man Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. As John wrote about him in verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was. God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. You see, Jesus Christ, He is the light of the world. For many in our world at this time of year, Jesus is just that one, that story long ago, born in a manger in Bethlehem. 
And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria and all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea under the city of Bethlehem, which is called under the city, I messed that up, which is called Bethlehem, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. There were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And suddenly the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. They were sore afraid, and the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men and our world for many. That's the limit of Jesus. He was a baby in a manger. You see, when you study the pages of Scripture, we understand that Jesus was more than a baby in the manger. Who is this Jesus? The Scripture teaches us He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He is my Savior. He is my friend. And He died for you. He rose again. He is the Son of God. He is the lily of the valley. He is the bright and morning star. He is the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. He is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He is my Savior. Let's lift up the name of Jesus to the lost. Make Him known. This world doesn't know who Jesus is. Many would use His name and abuse it for selfish purposes. But the name of Jesus truly does have power over evil. It truly does. The devil knew who Jesus was. Jesus. I know. When Christ lived on this earth on several different occasions, he cast demons out. That maniac of Gadara. This man who lived among the graves tore his clothes off. Anytime they chained him down, he'd break the chains and walk away. And Jesus cast that demon out. He had a demon in him named Legion. He was full of demons. So many demons that when he cast them out, they went into a herd of swine and to pigs and they ran over the cliff of the ocean. And the people, they were more mad about the loss of the pigs. Then they were thankful for the transformation in that man's life. Isn't it sad that this world would rather have demons than have Jesus? The name of Jesus truly does have power over evil. But we also see how God, I love this, God used an evil spirit to magnify the name of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? God can use anything to lift up the name of Jesus. He used an evil spirit. Jesus, I know, 
And then the, the evil spirit comes out or, or it empowers this man that he was indwelling. And the man went over and he beat up the seven sons of Sceva. Look at verse number 16. And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them. Now, I want to just ask you if you underline in your Bible or circle, circle that word prevailed right there in verse number 16. We're going to come back to it. He prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. That's power. But notice, remember I said that he used a demon to magnify Jesus? Look at verse 17. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus. And fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Not the name of the demon. The name of the Lord Jesus. Isn't that incredible? No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever stand against the mighty hand of Jesus. So why do we spend so much of our lives pursuing things that have nothing to do with Jesus and His beautiful name? Why do we spend so much of our time chasing after the glittery things of this world that will never bring true fulfillment. My friends, I'm afraid even during this time of year when supposedly He's the reason for the season, we've got other things that fill up our time, our budgets, our focus, and take our energy. I'm all for celebrating. I'm all for having good meals. I enjoy to eat just like anybody else. I'm all for giving gifts to the people that you love. But don't let those things distract you from Jesus. How sad for many believers, even during this time, well, I can't do that. I got this thing. I got to go for that. I got to be a part of this. I, I can't. I don't have time to share Christ. I don't have time to read my Bible. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time. Because i got all this other stuff to do. Well, why are you doing all this stuff? Well, because it's Jesus' birthday. Don't forget Jesus on His own birthday. Or in the weeks surrounding it either. God used an evil spirit to magnify the name of Jesus. I want you to see in the last three verses, verse 18 to 20 is where we'll finish up this morning. Revival comes when the Word of God is mighty to transform sinners. Revival comes when the Word of God is mighty to transform sinners. I'm sorry, it's worded a little different on your screen. Revival comes when the Word of God mightily transforms sinners. Look at verse 18. And many that believed came. Who are these believers? These are the ones who had seen the work of God manifested through the people of God. These were the ones who had heard the name of Jesus as it was lifted up even by an evil spirit. And many believed, many that believed came. Notice what they did next and confessed. They confessed. And they showed their deeds. See, when Jesus was lifted up, 
people became very humble about their own sin and their own need to change. They showed their deeds, many of them also, which used curious arts. So clearly this idea of devil worship and magic and the occult was very prevalent there in Ephesus. They used curious arts. They brought their books together and they burned them. But notice where they burned them. It says, before all men. When they began to deal with their sin, it wasn't just, well, quiet. No. I come out looking just like I did before I dealt with, oh, I'm, I fixed this all. No, they said, hey, this is a problem. And they got it out. And they were willing to let everybody else see it. Not to glorify their sin, but to make it clear to everybody, we're choosing to follow God. We're no longer going our old way. We're now following Jesus. They burned them before all men and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So we can see here from the passage that the Word of God moved them to confess their sin. As they understand the truth from God's Word, you see it there in verse 20, so mightily grew the Word of God and prevailed. As they understood the truth of God's Word, they began to confess their sin. Lord, we've been following somebody who knows you, but is not as great as you. Hey, Christian, are you guilty of this sometimes? Chasing after other things, lesser things that are not the main thing. How's your relationship with God? How's your relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you have time to read His Word? To meditate on it? To memorize it? Do you have time to get to know Jesus and spend time with Him? You would think it's strange if I told you that I was married but that I never spent time with my wife. Why? Because... Marriage is not just a contract that you sign. It's a relationship that you invest in. And any relationship that you have is going to have good times and not so good times. It's going to have times where you get those butterflies in your stomach and times when it's just daily communicating and working through different things. And I find that sometimes for us because we're all made of flesh. We tend to gravitate towards those relationships that make us have fuzzy feelings inside. And I'm not saying that your relationship with God will never give you fuzzy feelings inside because God is pretty amazing. And a relationship with Him, to be honest, it's the best relationship you could ever have in your life. But like any relationship, you won't always have the warm fuzzies. Because choosing to follow God means sometimes, as these people did, forsaking something else. And I want you to notice this thing that they forsaked, it was very valuable to them. This thing they forsook, it was worth 50,000 pieces of silver. Not only did the Word of God move them to confess their sins, the Word of God moved them to change their wicked practices. Just admitting that you're a sinner, that you have wrong in your life is one thing. Now comes the hard thing. You've got to change. And for them to change meant giving up something that was valuable. It's interesting, right? God only put things in the Bible that we need to have, that we need to know. 
There's a lot in Scripture that he doesn't include of the various events that took place. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke wrote down the value of all these books that they burned, 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, most Bible scholars that you can read would tell you that a piece of silver that's referred to here is equivalent to a day's wages. Now, I don't know how many people gathered together here to burn their books, but if it was a thousand people, that's 50 days wages per person. Any of you want to give up two months of salary? They said we would to follow Jesus. You see, following God does cost you something. It costs you following your own plans, saying, Lord, I'll follow you. It costs you saying, Lord, I, I have my priorities that I need to accomplish. And no, Lord, I'm going to follow you. It costs you saying, well, this is my money. I do what I want to do with it. And say, no, Lord, you gave it to me. It's all yours. What would you have me to do? See, they confessed their sin, but they were willing to change their wicked practices. I think a lot of people would like to see revival, transformation. But far fewer are willing to confess their sin, and even fewer still are willing to change. Paul wrote about this change back to the church at Ephesus when he said in the book of Ephesians that you are to put off the old man with his deeds and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And then he says to put on the new man, which is made after righteousness. You see, putting off takes work. Putting on takes work. Being renewed, allowing God's word to renew your heart, it takes submissiveness to his truth. The Christian life is not something you can live in your own strength. We've already discussed that. Doing work for God is not something you can do in your own strength. We've already seen that. But allowing God to work through you can be hard work because it's the work of humbling yourself. So I have to do something? Well, yeah, humbling yourself if that's doing something. It sure feels like it a lot because guess what happens? Old pride rears its head and says, I'm going to do And then God says, no, humble yourself. Confess your sin. Change. Be willing to change. Would you allow God to change you if it was going to cost you something? Or do you only want God to change you if it doesn't cost you anything? Would you want God to use you if it was going to cost you something? Or would you only want God to use you if it doesn't cost you anything? It tells you a lot about where your heart is. What if for God to use you, he had to, you had to give Him of your finances? What if God, for to use you, you had to be willing to give up a relationship? What if for God to use you, you had to give up something that you like to do? A couple weeks ago, I was with a group of teenagers and we were discussing this very topic about serving God and how it costs you something. Man, that just sounds tough that it costs you something. I said, God always gives back to you more than he ever asks for you to give him. Remember, God says, I want you to give me your life. But what does God say in return? I'll give you eternal life. 
God says, hey, cast all your care upon me because I'm going to care for you. I'll bear your burdens. See, our flesh, this world would like you to think, boy, sacrificing for God, that's a hard thing. Do you think it was worth it for these people to give up their 50,000 pieces of silver valued books in order to follow God? Well, you have to ask them in heaven someday. But I'm pretty sure I know the answer. The Word of God moved them to confess their sin. The Word of God moved them to change their wicked practice. And I would say this finally, the Word of God mightily transformed the lives of those who submitted to the truth. Look once again at verse number 20. So mightily grew the Word of God and prevailed. Remember I had you circle the first use of that word prevailed back in verse number 16? What happened when the evil spirit came out through that man and he went against the seven sons of Sceva? It says he prevailed against them. But here we are just a few verses later. And what does it say about the Word of God? It grew. It grew in its reach. But it also prevailed. What does prevailed mean? It means to overcome. It means to win. It means to be victorious. The Word of God prevailed. The Bible commentator Matthew Henry said this, when strong corruptions are mortified, when vicious habits are changed, when evil customs of long standing are broken off and pleasant, gainful, fashionable sins are abandoned, then the Word of God prevails mightily. In fact, and I said this last week, but I'll say it again today because we're getting there. We're looking forward to this. It prevailed so mightily in Ephesus that it changed the entire economy of idolatry in the city of Ephesus. So much so that the silversmiths who made the little idols of the goddess Diana for all of the people in Ephesus and the tourists who would come to visit this wonder of the ancient world, they lost so much business, they came out in the streets and rioted against the believers because they had turned to God from idols. It changed the... That's power. That's winning, right? God's Word prevailed. How valuable is God's Word? The psalmist said, Therefore I love thy commandments above gold, yea, above fine gold. How valuable is the truth? Proverbs says in verse eight, chapter 8, verse 11, For wisdom is better than rubies, and all things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. I want to close with one final thought. Because when you see the power of God on display and you read that the Word of God had power and it prevailed, have you ever wondered then, if God's Word is so powerful, if God is so powerful, then why doesn't everybody just get saved? And why isn't everybody's life changed? Ever thought about that? Why don't we see revival every day in everybody's life? If God is so powerful. Somebody might even say, well, it seems to me God's not really that powerful at all because if He was, He would make all this happen. 
fact, it sounds to me like people are pretty powerful because they can stand against God and choose not to follow Him. Is that a sign of your power being greater than God's power? It's probably a whole other message for another time, but let me just give you some food for thought. God is holy. We know that from Scripture. It means He's absolutely set apart from sin. God cannot dwell with sin. That's why He kicked all Satan and all of his demons out of heaven. We also know that God is love, which means God loves you. He cares for you. We know that He sent His Son Jesus Christ to die for you. So is it really a demonstration of your power when you stand against God and resist God and reject God? Or is it a sign of His love that He won't force you to choose to follow Him? See, people in this world that stand against God and feel powerful in doing it, it's not because God's weak and they're strong. It's because God loves them enough to let them make their own choice. Because the reality is, and again, you have to read all of Scripture to see these things. If you'll read the back of the book, as it says, if you read the end, He wins. Because there's coming a day. Paul actually wrote about it even in Philippians. Chapter 2 when he said that every knee shall bow. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So don't let God's love towards you, God's patience, His long-suffering in your life allow you to think that you're somehow more powerful than God is. You may know somebody in your community. You may interact with somebody that feels like God is weak because if God was really strong, He would make all these happen, things happen. He would do all this. He would just save everybody, right? No, because God isn't trying to make you into a robot. No, He wants you to be His child. I'm bigger than my kids, at least for right now. I'm stronger than them still, at least for right now. I can force them to do things because I'm stronger than them. But forcing them to do things is not loving them. Them choosing to follow me and me inviting them, to follow, that's love, right? God had to force you to do something, force you to change, force you to give something up. That's not love. And that's not what God does. It's not because He can't. It's because He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He invites you to come. He says, follow me. He didn't grab His disciples before they were His disciples in a headlock and say, come with me. No, He said, follow me. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You see, the ability that people have to stand against God is not because you're so strong and He's weak. It's because He's mighty and He loves you. Don't resist Him. 
Yes, you can, but it's not because you're powerful. It's because you're sinful. And it's because He loves you. Invite Him in. Confess your sin. Make the changes that need to be made. Because there's coming a day when you will bow. And better to bow now while you have the choice than to be bow bowing someday when you don't have the choice and to be separated from Him for all eternity. And Christian, as a believer, it's interesting to me, it was the believe, those who believed who came and confessed. So this isn't just a message for those who don't know Christ. This is for all of us. We want to see revival, transformation, new life, growth, change, God's power on display. We have to understand it's God's power at work through God's people. It's not our power. We have to understand God's power is at work as the name of Jesus is magnified. And it's the power of God through the Word of God that transforms lives as we confess our sin to God and make it right with Him. I believe God's been speaking to many hearts this morning about many different things. This is a message that as God was helping me work through it in my own time of study and meditation as I was reading through these passages, I realized this hits us in a lot of different places. It's a really focused point, but it has a lot of application. You may need to take some time this afternoon, this week, to sit down and make some more of that personal application in your own life. But I would ask you, like David did at the end of Psalm 139, to say, search me, O God. Know my heart. He already does. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. And then lead me in the way everlasting. Would you commit to doing that this week? How many of you would say, Pastor, by God's grace, I'm going to take some time this week just to ask God to search my heart, to try my thoughts, and if there's something I need to change, I'll change. Anybody? Good. There's a, there's a lot of us. All right, let's do it. Let's pray. God knows your heart, though. Your hands, just your commitment to me and to these believers. But make it right with God. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. Too often we're lulled into thinking that we are really strong and tough and we can do a lot in our own strength. And the truth is, without you, we can do nothing. Lord, thank you for loving us, even though we so often go our own way. Thank you for our church and the transformative work that you continue to do in the lives of the people that are choosing to follow you, choosing to confess their sin and allow you to do the work of transformation. I pray, Lord, that your word would grow mightily here and prevail in this church, in this community, in this city. There are many that name the name of Jesus, but Lord, we must come to you understanding who Christ is from your word, not just who we've made him up to be. Lord, help us not to live for our glory, but for yours.
And I pray that you would convict hearts, bring to mind things that need to change. And that all that's done would be for your glory. That you would purify us and sanctify us from, for your work. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.